Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm a member here. I'll be reading this morning's scripture passage, which is Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, John. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word and your kindness in giving us the Psalms that teach us how to live in this world with an appropriate spiritual lens. Lord, um, I'm so thankful for this text and for how much it stands to teach us as we live in these times and these days. I just pray, Lord, that um, you, by your Spirit, would soften our hearts to receive it, and that you would apply the content and intent of Psalm 11 to your people um, according to your Spirit in ways that I, I can't, and that I don't have time to do so this morning. We trust you with it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Some time ago now, Danny and I met for coffee, um, just but collectivo on North and Swan, which is pretty much my standard meeting place. Um, but that's not weird. What was uh, contextually a little bit different is that this is late in the spring of 2020, so pretty much right in the middle of the lockdown. And at this point, I was fairly early on in my membership. Danny and I didn't really know each other that well, and so we're outside in front of Colectivo because no one could go inside. Everyone's super germ conscious. We'd just taken off our masks, and I drink that hot, delicious coffee. Um, and then I get this tickle in my throat. It's just a little tickle. It's nothing to freak out about. So I'm like, <clears throat> you know, cough a little unobtrusively and then take another big swig. And that tickle comes back hard and it comes back suddenly. So I don't want to waste my coffee. So I just, you know, swallow it, that scalding hot coffee. And my body says, nope. And I spew that coffee all in Danny's face when he's in mid-sentence. He had no warning. And there's just coffee spit all over, um, <laughs> and all from a guy he only kind of knew in the middle of a global pandemic lockdown. So needless to say, I found myself wanting to flee like a bird to a mountain in that moment. But life has a way of forcing us into situations that make us want to search for a refuge, doesn't it? A refuge, of course, is a place to hide. It's a place of safety a stronghold that we can camp out in and wait out the hard and the troubling things in life. See, life in this world puts us in situations where we wish we could just disappear, where we could, as someone tells the author of Psalm 11, flee like a bird to your mountain. So let's be asking ourselves this question today, and importantly, please, be honest with your answers. Where do you go for refuge when things get hard? What or who is your refuge? 
The very first words in Psalm 11 show us that this psalm is meant to teach us something about where we should go for refuge. Of course, more specifically, who we should go to for refuge. I take refuge in the Lord, it reads. And remember, the Psalms are Spirit of God-inspired hymns. They're poems, songs, and they're written together to teach us how to worship God rightly, how to respond to common human problems appropriately, how to have a spiritual lens through which we view the world, how to think, how to pray, to confess sin, to mourn. And Psalm 11 is a psalm for how to take refuge. More importantly, who to take refuge in. So here's the plan this morning. I think Psalm 11 has two parts. The first is in verses 1 through 3, and the second part is verses 4 through 7. David starts with his proposition. He declares from the beginning what he's trying to get done in saying, in the Lord I take refuge. Then he shares some bad news, and after the bad news comes good news, a series of wonderful and awe-inspiring truths about God. And that good news supports why he starts the psalm with such a confident statement. So let's spend some time in the bad news for part one, dive into the good news of part two, and then just apply these things as they come. Sound good? Part one, bad news, second half of verse one through three. We aren't told who is telling David the bad news in this psalm, but it's not hard to see why this person thinks David should flee. In short, it's because things are looking so bad that David's life is in danger. For behold, he says, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The bad news revolves around the wicked. And some of what David's trying to get at here, it's of course immediately obvious. And generally, when you see the wicked in Psalms personal psalm, or sorry, in David's personal psalms, uh, it's a safe bet to say that there is a literal and specific group of people that he has in mind. Because David's life was one of turmoil, of war, of civil unrest. He was a king of ancient Israel. He often had threats to his life. So certainly there is. There's a physical and a personal and a literal dimension to the wicked that David has in view here. And there's also a more general and a spiritual caricature of the wicked in view a kind of blanket designation for an enemy of God. David was the king of Israel, God's chosen and unique covenant family. To target Israel was to target God. To target the king of Israel as its head was to target God. And so what do these wicked, God-hating, God-targeting people do? They don't fight fair. They're ambushers. They're in the dark. They target the upright. They're unseen, they're conspiring, scheming, looking for that soft spot, a clean shot, an opportunity to do the most damage. And all this works together to be pretty bad news. In fact, things are so bad as to be hopeless. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's as if David's being told, there's no use fighting anymore for this thing. It's doomed. The foundation's cracked, man. There's no fixing that. There's no good intention. There's no righteous act. There's no strength of will that can budge the destiny of this sinking ship. What can the righteous do? So in the face of such hopeless evil, of this unfair targeting of the upright, David, who is 
one of the upright, he better flee. I mean, if he wants to preserve his life, to save his life, to fight another day, he better flee. I find it interesting here that David's told to flee like a bird. Um, I've actually recently gotten to see this firsthand, what this looks like. Most days throughout the year, I ride my fat tire bike along the Menominee River to work uh, throughout the year. And so on the mountain bike trail that runs by the river, it's not uncommon that I encounter critters in my path, a list that includes uh, deer, coyotes, and of course, birds. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a great example. And uh, usually I encounter them when I'm screaming around a corner and they're hidden from view by tall grass or banks of snow. And for each of these animals, the same truth applies. Their physical well-being is in danger from this 250-pound combined mass of bike and man and backpack. And if they stay in that trail, they will have a wicked mass of spiky tires aiming at them in the semi-dark of the morning. So they better flee. And they do. The deer, they just, they have a startled snort and freeze thing that they do. And then they more or less make up for it with graceful bounding through the long grass. The coyotes, they never freeze. They just like sink away into the grass or they take off faster than I could go. The birds, though, they're the worst. The ducks, they just like waddle nonchalantly towards the river. Uh, The smaller birds poof into random vectors, the flurry of feathers. And then there's the turkeys. Oh, those toasted turkeys. Uh, One takes to the air more loudly than should be possible. One darts towards the river, recognizes it can't swim, and then darts back towards death by bicycle. And then the last one, it just goes and screams all the way down the trail. They are just not graceful at all. But the sad thing is that um, the same thing that's true for all the animals, they flee like birds to their refuge. That's the same thing that's true for us we're going to flee to our own refuges. We just do it in a more human way. So that leads us to our first takeaway. We will be tempted to flee. When the corruption of this current age makes life seem hopeless, like the foundations are destroyed, we will be tempted to flee like a bird to our mountain. We will be tempted to go to a place of strength that we think can withstand all the onslaught of wicked arrows being aimed at us in the dark. And we may do this in various ways. It may look different from person to person, much like it looks different for the deer, for the coyote, and for the turkey. But the point is this. Psalm 11 has something to teach all of us when it comes to responding to bad news. Our natural inclination is not going to be take refuge in the Lord, but rather it's to take refuge in pretty much anything else. Last year, my family experienced the tragic loss of my wife's brother, Jason, in a car accident. And the circumstances of this particular accident are kind of like the wicked taking aim at the upright and dark. At least that's the way it seems to me. A man was driving illegally without a driver's license, high on marijuana, and by all accounts swerved across oncoming traffic and seemingly pursued Jason's vehicle off the side of the road as he was trying to avoid it and pull off. The accident simply should not have happened. It was unfair, and wickedness seemed to prevail. And the foundations of the family were shaken and cracked. You know, I noticed through the last year that many of us fled to different refuges. We didn't all handle it the same, but I use this situation as an example of how this wicked world will seemingly target us. It'll tempt us to flee like a bird to some refuge 
that isn't God. Of course, the options for refuge here, they're, they're puny. They're bad refuges, but they're still super common choices. Anger, it's a common one. Of course, that's going to turn into a slow, roiling, burning type of anger, which leads to bitterness. This, uh, I think, just looks so close to desiring genuine justice that it's particularly deceptive. Despair, another common choice that ends up shaking the faith. It makes you wonder if you believe God is good. Escape, denial, disengagement, kind of flavors of another common choice. But of course, that is not a helpful refuge in the long run. Nothing gets done there. You know, I think I noticed variations of those three common choices in my family throughout the year. And by God's grace, we all sought refuge in the Lord in various ways and at various times. But we could learn a lot, I think, from Psalm 11. And particularly, we could learn to be a bit suspicious about where we turn first for refuge. You know, I think life-threatening illness fits into the same category. When the cancer diagnosis comes crashing through your dreams, when the pain of chronic illness has us feeling like arrows are hitting us in the dark, when your own mind and your own emotions are holding you prisoner with a mental illness and it seems like no, no escape is in sight, you're going to be tempted to flee. But please, be careful where you flee to. Another broad category of life that I want to highlight is just simply our interaction with the outside world. When our chaotic and sin-soaked world seems to be worse than ever before, which is a sentiment that has been shared by every generation since the beginning of time, we will be tempted to see the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And a common choice I've seen, especially in the past couple of years, is to respond to that kind of bad news with politics. Both sides of the divide claimed they were the upright. Both sides of the divide said that the wicked were aiming arrows at them in the dark. And we were tempted to flee to our political parties and to our candidates of refuge. But compared to taking refuge in the king above all kings, fleeing to political parties and to a political mountain is kind of lame. Whether it is the unexpected and dream-shattering, life-altering bad news of external evil done to you, the sicknesses, the cancer, abuse, trauma, chronic illness, that unexpected big injury or even death, whether it's those external things or whether it's the struggles of our interaction in a fallen and chaotic world, whether it's persecution for being a Christian because the world rejected and persecuted and killed our king, or whether it's just the uncomfortability of living as upright in a wicked culture, Psalm 11 is written for us in those kinds of situations. It's written for us and in your Bibles to teach you how to respond. So when David got the bad news of Psalm 11, he says this, I take refuge in the Lord. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Look, he didn't say this because the news wasn't bad. It was bad. And there is real evil. There is something to be upset about in this terrible, wicked, corrupted, sin-soaked world. But there's only hopelessness if there's no refuge that can handle it. There's no need to flee, like we'll be tempted to, if there is a better refuge than the mountain that we would normally flee to. 
David knows of a refuge so great, he can respond to this bad news by saying, I don't need to flee. I don't need to go to that mountain because he has a better refuge. And that's revealed in the good news of part two, starting with the Lord is in his holy temple. Jehovah, God of everything, maker of heaven and earth, maker of the wicked and the upright both. He who caused the nation of Israel to even be a thing, this God who cannot be approached by sinful humans, lest they like literally die, is a weighty supreme being. He's separate from us humans. He's different than us humans. And he's worthy of a specific kind of complete respect, complete reverence and appropriate fear. And above it all, he's worthy of worship. He belongs not on earth like a man, but in a heavenly temple, a place suitable for a being fully worthy of worship and reverence and obedience. And the second truth is that the Lord's throne is in heaven. King David here is proclaiming that there's a bigger and better king than him, a king who's separate and other, a king of kings, and one whose authority is not to be challenged by any puny kingdom here on earth, because his kingdom is over the earth. It's untouchable by our puny little politics here. You see, to understand David's refuge, we've got to understand the God of his refuge. And one of my favorite pictures of God's holiness is in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah has an image or spiritual recognition of what the throne room of God is like. Isaiah chapter 6, you can just listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One does not witness the glory, the majesty, the supernatural, suprahuman kingship of this God and not come away deeply affected. Isaiah felt undone when he saw God's throne room. And this is the very being who's in charge of everything who sees everything. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. You see, there is not any action of man. There's no thought. There's no word, whether it's good or bad, that escapes God's sovereign notice. God sees it. And this is good news because he will accurately discover the truth of the heart. He will discover who is upright. He will discover if a person is wicked. He'll discover whether a person is in the dark aiming arrows or he'll discover whether they're so much like their father in heaven that they end up seeing his face. Nobody can trick or fool this all-knowing God, this great and powerful God whose soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Granted, this is a biblical concept that's not compatible with a common idea of God that exists in our culture today. It's a view of God that's not a lot like what we saw in Isaiah 6. It's not like the God we see in Psalm 11, but it's more of a nebulous love God. 
a supernatural affirmer of anything and everything we as humans find important to express ourselves. In other words, a puny refuge. I think one consequence of not letting the Bible reveal God as he himself wants to be revealed is that we tend to end up with a skewed view of who God is and what he's like. And to me, I think it's like one of two extremes. On the one hand, you've got a cushy, not sovereign God of love who exists to affirm our individual choices. So really, it's us as God. Or a harsh and judgment-loving God who delights in punishing anybody who steps out of line. A tyrant. But here in Psalm 11, David gives us the marriage of the extremes. He shows us what God's really like. There's a completely holy, completely authoritative king in heaven who's not tricked by anything, and he knows exactly who is wicked, exactly who's upright. He punishes evil, true, but it's to lovingly protect the innocent. The king in heaven is so perfect, so holy. He gets to define what righteousness is. He gets to define what wickedness is. And given how bad humans are at those definitions, it's pretty good news. In that holiness and in that righteousness, he is kind and gracious to deliver people into his presence. He preserves their life. You see, a God like this, a God this sovereign, this holy and righteous, is a mighty refuge, a mighty fortress. And David casts his hope onto a God who's far more capable of saving him from a hopeless situation than he is at saving himself. David takes refuge in this God, the Lord in his holy temple, the Lord whose throne is in heaven, the God who will rightly and justly separate wicked from upright, the God who will execute such perfect justice as to remove his presence or move evil from his presence from this world and lovingly deliver his perfected, fully righteous children who are upright in heart to behold his face. And I believe at the heart of it all, at the very foundation of David's confidence in the Lord as his refuge, it's this desire to behold the face of God. Look, if you think about what it really looks like for David to take refuge in God and not flee to the mountain like this bad, bad news bearer says, it's like David is actually giving up control over his own well-being. He would rather resist the temptation to flee to a lesser refuge if it meant beholding the face of his God, if it meant saving his soul, because to David, there's no better outcome, so there's no better refuge. Takeaway number two, there is a righteous king in heaven. When we encounter the standard, ordinary trials of life in a corrupted universe, we're going to be tempted to flee into all sorts of things for refuge whether it be those external things done to you or interaction with a very difficult world, we're going to be tempted to flee to anger, despair, disengagement, or any other terrible refuge. Anger, because we sense that something's been unjustly done to us, and we think it should be within our power to see justice done. And of course, when justice isn't done, not to our satisfaction, because by the way, that's actually impossible for humans to do, that gives rise to bitterness. But Psalm 11 can intervene here if you let it. It can teach you that the Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven, and in his testing of the children of man, he will accurately, with full justice, truly repay the wicked for what they've done. And he'll do this with a perfect and righteous justice that is incomprehensibly above and beyond anything you or I could do. So we can trust him with it. When David takes refuge in the Lord in Psalm 11, he trusts God with his justice. With a, such a sovereign and authoritative king in heaven, we don't have to despair. That refuge is super not powerful. Instead, we can take refuge in a God whose throne is in heaven, above every kingdom on earth, not constrained by anything that happens here on the earth. And we can take refuge in a God who's powerful enough to deliver us into his presence so we can see his face. You won't be powerful enough to save yourself. But Psalm 11 teaches us that God is. Church, the good news of Psalm 11 can give us the courage to step out into the dark, knowing that the wicked are going to target us with their arrows, knowing that the foundations are cracked, and still live upright lives, taking refuge in a God who is more powerful than the wicked in this world. We can take refuge in a God who's able to make all things come together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's no law of man, no strategy of government that could be a better refuge than a holy God in his holy temple whose throne is in heaven. And we learned all this from the good news of Psalm 11, that there is a righteous king in heaven. But what if the evil and the wickedness that we're experiencing is not so much external? What if it isn't born from the struggles of living as an upright in a wicked world? What if that wickedness is more internal? What if you don't really feel upright at all? What if, when you're spiritually honest, you recognize that if there truly is a righteous king in heaven, if there is a God who will accurately punish the wicked and save the innocent, what if you realize that means you're in trouble? Look, if that's you, I can assure you that every single member of this church has said that they were once in your shoes. You're in good company. All humans have been in your shoes, save for one. And if you're unsure about where you stand before a righteous God, the kingdom of heaven is not far from you. God knows, this is a, God knows this is a problem, and he has a solution for it. The solution is not you as a human doubling down on your spiritual power. The solution is not in religious works or in social service. No, the solution is to take refuge in the righteous king in heaven. The claim of Psalm 11 is this. There is no better refuge than the righteous king in heaven. There's none. And this is the claim that David understood, the claim that caused him to take refuge in the Lord. And this is the claim that I want to take away last. Take refuge in the righteous king. Let me ask you this. How could David, who is actually one of the wicked people he writes about, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's an adulterer. How could David in Psalm 11 believe he would see the face of a righteous king in heaven? It sure was not a confidence in his own actions. It was not a confidence in his own spiritual power. His confidence came from reckless abandonment of his control over his own well-being. David cast himself on the mercy of God. 
He understood something about God that we today, on this side of the cross of Jesus, know more clearly. On this side of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, of the Son of God, of God himself in human flesh, we today can understand what David did more clearly. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We can see more clearly that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the one who gave up his status as king in heaven for a time, who willingly, out of love, condescended to a wicked and sin-soaked planet that hated him. He suffered and died as the only perfect, the only upright human, the only one to ever unfairly get pummeled with wicked arrows in the dark. And what did this action of this righteous king accomplish? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, taking refuge in Jesus Christ when you encounter your own internal wickedness, taking refuge in Jesus Christ and his spiritual power to save you from the punishment you deserve, taking refuge in this righteous king actually makes you righteous. Taking refuge in the righteous king, Jesus, will result in you beholding the face of God and you being declared upright, not because of the works you've done in life. They weren't good enough to offset your evil, but because of the surpassing worthiness of the righteous acts of Jesus, which God loves just like David did, we can give up trying to preserve our control over our well-being in this wicked world. We can give up fleeing to worthless refuges, and instead we can take refuge in the righteous king of heaven. And listen to this amazing glimpse into the future. If, if anyone truly takes refuge in Jesus and continues to do so, this is the end. Revelation 22 no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They'll need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. There is no better refuge than the righteous king in heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. It's timely. It's always timely. I pray that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive it. Thank you, Jesus, for coming down and saving us when we didn't deserve it, for your kindness and your grace and not coming to be served, or excuse me, not coming to, yeah, not coming to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.